Coming up, Jalen Brown's future, Damon and Affleck interviewed together. Almost feels like an all Boston pod. It's next. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game and they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. I put up a new rewatchables on Monday night. Juliet Lippman and I did Adventureland, one of the lost great rewatchable movies of the late 2000s. Just too many good comedies and comedy-centric type of movies, and this one just slipped through the cracks. And then cable, streaming, Blu-ray, it just kind of kept going and going. And now I think it, it is properly recognized. But we talked about it anyway. It was really fun. Ringer NBA show, Ringer NFL show. All of our podcasts, you can find them on theringer.com. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook. Every Wednesday, I put up a same-game parlay on my Twitter feed from the NBA schedule. Um, almost hit an 8-1 to one last Wednesday. If the, if the Warriors could have beaten the Clippers, we would have had it. I love those 8-1, to 9-1s. They're just really fun to create. You can do it on the FanDuel Sportsbook app. Coming up on this podcast, I'm going to talk to Logan Murdoch about his Jalen Brown feature that ran on The Ringer today. And then I've had Matt Damon on this podcast, I think, three times. I've had Ben Affleck on my podcast or the HBO show twice, but never together. And the goal was always to get them together. And it finally happened, got them together for just an awesome interview that I'm really excited to share with you. So this is an elite podcast. I almost feel like you should be paying me for this one. And yet, that's the great thing about this podcast. It's free and you get Pearl Jam. Bring them in. All right, we're taping this part of the podcast. It is late Tuesday morning. Logan Murdoch from The Ringer, so you can hear him on The Real Ones. You can read him on TheRinger.com. He did a piece about Jalen Brown today that he spent some time on. Uh, it's a feature. Uh, some really good quotes from a lot of different people. Uh, congrats on the piece, first of all. You realize that uh, Celtics Nation is in a tizzy right now. Now everybody's worried Jalen Brown's going to leave. <laughs> that, that was the, the short takeaway was, oh my God, Jalen Brown is going to leave. But 
you know, lost in that whole thing was this is a really good piece with a really good interview and the kind of access and quotes that we don't see as much anymore. And I know you and I have talked about this offline, how hard it is to just get athletes to talk in 2023 and just to be honest about what's going on with them. So what was your process just trying to get him to talk? Well, full transparency, I covered uh, Jalen a little bit when he was at Cal. Uh, I was interning, you know, but I got to know him a little bit. And uh, I think that's where the story starts. So where it started, you know, my relationship with him started when he was at Cal. But honestly, starting this piece was at Cal where, you know, talked to a couple of his professors and just people that um, knew him around around campus, because that's kind of where he got his mindset in terms of, um, you know, being an organizer and just seeing himself beyond the game. Um, you know, it started with his mom, Michelle, but it was it was really cultivated in his one year at Berkeley because it really showed him that, um, you know, he want, it showed him that he wanted to be more than the game. And so that's where I kind of started. And then um, I think I started this in, this process and reporting it out in November and uh, talked to him in January. And it was just, quite frankly, the hardest piece I've ever done. But, um, you know, it was really, it, it was, it was, it was uh, interesting getting in his head for four months. And, you know, he's a really, really, really deep person. And, um, you know, it was, it was just one of those pieces where, you had to have layers in order to be able to tell the Jalen Brown story. So there's two things going on with him that concern me as a fan. And I, you know, I'm a huge Jalen Brown fan. Um, but the KD trade rumors popped up last summer and the team never publicly said, we're not trading Jalen Brown. This is stupid. Why is this out there? And I was doing podcasts at the time saying they should come out and say, this is bullshit. We're not trading Jalen Brown. We want to build around Tatum and Jalen. But in the Celtics fan universe, it became a big debate. Would you do this? Wait, that's crazy. You wouldn't trade Jalen Brown for Kevin Durant. He's one of the 15 best players of all time. So that became a whole dialogue that I think he was really aware of. And I, I don't think it was ever kind of shut down to his satisfaction. So you had that piece. And then you had the Adoka piece, who was somebody that I think he really liked playing for. And I think the lack of transparency about how that was handled, which I think from an organizational standpoint, they couldn't really be that transparent because I think there was some HR stuff and some legal stuff. So the details were a little sparse, even for the players. But I think those two things together put this, the start of the season, even though the Celtics were playing well, it, it just gave it a weird vibe. And now, now that they're not playing well, it's starting to come out. There was a New York Times piece last week, an interview with him that he had, he had some tough quotes about the city of Boston and the fans. And then in this piece too, same thing. It seems like he's struggling with his identity as a member of the Celtics and whether, you know, the the loyalty factors and then you go backwards with the history of the franchise. Ray Allen, that's why he left. They're going to trade him. He found out they're going to trade him in uh, 2012, ends up signing with Miami. The way Isaiah Thomas was treated in 2017. Um, I think these guys are aware, like as great of an organization as this is, there is that the moment we can turn you into a better asset, we might. And yeah. it does seem and, like it affected him. Well, there's a third thing to that, Bill, which is all of that stuff you talked about going on in the summertime, that goes on weeks after he led the, uh, he helped lead the Celtics to a to a title. Uh, not to a title, excuse me, to a finals run. And yeah. he's thinking, hey, I, I, this is the this is the best team that sh that we have had in years, counting the times where we the years where we had Kyrie. We got I got us to the, help get us to the finals alongside Tatum and Smart and Ma with this guy. And now you guys are talking about trading me on top of the fact that I was a rookie 
when you guys did what you did to Isaiah Thomas. Um, I remember seeing that firsthand. I'm speaking in, in uh, you know, for, for Jalen in this, and he's seeing this world where, you know, I might not, I, I am a, I am a asset in, involved in the institution rather than somebody that is a partner and trying to get us titles. Um, and it's funny because it didn't really make the piece, but uh, to your point about the New York Times article and his relationship with Boston, it's interesting because he already came, when I talked to him, um, he had already come in with the notion um, of, uh, you know, just having just, just feeling weird about going to Boston based on, based on all of the things that he heard, um, just in past baggage and things like yeah. that, past baggage and things like that. Um, so he was already getting that. And I feel like his time in Boston has been just, it's been filled with conflictions because, you know, first off, he thought that he should be a starter right away. And he did start in the beginning, but his time, his playing time would dwindle. Um, and, you know, he's over here looking at, uh, ben Simmons in Philly. He's looking at um, J- uh, uh, Ingram, and he was in LA at that point. But he's comparing himself to these other guys. Like I think I'm better than them. Why am I not getting this opportunity? And all of these things are happening on top of the fact that he's getting dangled for when Anthony Davis is on the market. Hey, there's Jalen Brown. He's a good asset. Or when Kawhi Leonard is there, he's always, um, you know, being Paul George dangled. was another one. Yeah, they, yep. he was in every. He was always the one that got thrown in a rumor, whether it was true or untrue. I think from his standpoint, especially with the KD thing, I think they made a real mistake organizationally, not just coming out right away and being like, "Hey, we're not trading Jalen Brown. We love Jalen Brown." We want to build yeah. around him and Tatum. Those are our guys, and that's it. Don't believe any yeah. stories about this. But they never said yeah. anything. I thought, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was well handled. It, it well, I don't think it was either. I mean, considering the fact that you at least publicly say you consider him a uh, a franchise star, and I think I really do think um, this summer was a big, big turning point because it was yet another time after he is a friend after Jalen has become this franchise cornerstone and then to be in trade rumors, because it's one thing to be a young guy and be in trade rumors because that's just the game. But when after you lead a franchise to a to a tie or to it, I keep saying title every time if you lead to the a franchise to to the finals, you expect to have some level of respect. And, you know, that Kevin Durant thing happened week a couple of weeks after that finals appearance oh and, yeah and he's thinking like another person you guys think is better than me on top of the other other things that i other conflictions i have with this organization so it's 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 been a tough go for for jalen and uh you know it well, wait, also to, just, wait to be fair and to be fair on that trade thing we don't know if they ever talked to the nets about an actual trade but the problem yeah. is it was out there that they were talking or they were circling. And that's when you just have to squash it. And the fact that they didn't squash it in any way and just let it kind of linger and yeah. then become a debate within the fan base and on the media and on talk radio. That's where I think I, I think they lost the narrative a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And now it's, you know, and this this starting to come out as they try to make another playoff run, you know, and this is just going to be it's going to be a tough thing overall for the Celtics. And this always is something that tends to happen with them. Um, you know, say what you want about other organizations, but the Celtics are getting a bit of a reputation that they don't take care of their stars, which is something that the rest of the league sees. Now, they develop really, really well. They they draft really, really well. But I think the next step for the Celtics, and they have a newer regime. This is not the Danny Ainge regime, but they have an opportunity or what they should be doing is showing the rest of the league, no, nah, we take care of our stars within the fabric of this organization. And, you know, they're kind of fumbling the ball on that, at least publicly. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I mean, Danny left. I think Danny had the reputation. It was always the joke of Danny would trade his mother if he could get five more wins. And that was just the mentality that nobody was safe at any time. Um, yeah. But he hasn't been there for a year and a half. And that's that's what was so confusing to me as as a Celtics fan and somebody who's followed this franchise for a long time that, you know, Brown already had enough baggage with the fact that Tatum was a little bit of the favorite son, right? Brown is a little mm -hmm. bit of a middle child syndrome with Brown and it's always been Tatum. Tatum is the most popular guy in Boston. He is. Yeah. Um, he's the most popular athlete. And once Brady left, Tatum really last year became the guy. And Brown has been, you know, his sidekick's the wrong word, but like his his running mate. But it you was know always I, Tatum. I, I, and then, I always and, compare it to a Tribe Called Quest. Like it's Tatum is uh is Q tip and and Jalen Brown is Five Dog, right? Like Five Dog is the one. Like he you he can rap with anybody, but Q-Tip is always the face of Tribe Called Quest. And I, I really got that, that comparison when I, when I saw, when I went out to Boston that I think Jalen is really, really respected. And I think people really know what Jalen brings to the table, but you're right. Jason is the one. He is the, he is, he is the one. And I think also because Jalen embraces that in a way, I don't think, uh, excuse me, I keep getting the J's wrong, but Jason em embra embraces that, more he he shows more of himself than um than JB does and i think that that kind of manifests all the way around is that you know i think that uh J, i think that Jalen can be one of those guys but he has to embrace it and show himself a bit more and i don't think he necessarily does that and i think that that really manifests in how the city portrays both of them well one of the reasons and i was saying this last summer that i thought it was so important they keep him and invest in him and make him happy is this is one of these rare guys, young black guy who wants to come in and be part of the city and invest in the city and do all these charitable things and really try to make an impact on the city, which, you know, given the history and stuff is something I think the city that, that that's like fantastic that he fell out of the sky. Basically there's a money piece of this that you didn't really go into a hundred percent in the story because it's, it's, it's kind of in flux because if he makes the all NBA team this year, which is very possible, then the money thing suddenly doesn't become a, a problem. But right now, they signed him to a really good extension a couple of years ago. It's like 25 a year, but it's not the max. It limits, because of the CBA, it kind of limits the extension they can get. And this is why from about a year ago, I think the organization started to become a little concerned that he might jump because he could just make more money if your Houston has you know cap space or name a team that all of a sudden the year he becomes a free agent, just has the cap space, they can just sign him for more than the Celtics can can pay him. Now, the catch is if he makes the All-NBA team this year, he's eligible for a five for 190. And, or I'm sorry, five for 290, which is way more than anyone else can pay for him. So weirdly, it all comes down to if he's a third team All-NBA forward, he'll get the money. And then it becomes a question of, do they want to pay him and Tatum a combined, you know, 90, 95 million a year? And now you're in warrior's land. Or is that your reason maybe to trade him and, and make him a franchise guy somewhere else? It, Logan, I looked at, I, I have, I have Jalen as my third team all NBA forward. If he's eligible there, he's played more forward than guard this year. And I think he's the logical pick to be one of the six forwards. If season ended today, it might change. But if he gets that money, do you feel like that changes anything? I feel, I see, I, I, even as you talk about it, I'm kind of on the fence about it because you say all these things about 
you know, money and, and, and analytics and also the, the contract situation. But I think that all Jalen wants to know is that he is that he matters within the organization. Right. I think that there's a there's a bigger thing here, which is I mean, I'm sure he'll sign for as much money as he can. You know, you know, he, he you know, that's generational wealth. But I think the key here is. I think he wants to feel like he's a partner in this. I, I think he's always wanted to feel like that. I feel like he thinks that, mm. man, I'm a guy that is that is that has played. You know, I've I've played in big moments for this organization. You know, I've 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 you know been a part of, uh, been an integral part of a lot of different postseason runs. I just want my due. I don't want to, uh, you know, lead us to a deep postseason run and then be the subject of trade rumors. And I don't feel like at least publicly you guys have my back. I think it's bigger than just the monetary thing. Now, the monetary thing is great. And I'm sure that that he he will be really, really happy to get the bag. But I think it's more than that. I think it's more of the respect thing when it comes to Jalen, especially as it pertains to his relationship with the with the Boston Celtics. I 100% agree with you. And I think they misjudged it. I'm actually surprised that they didn't see this last summer. I don't get it. This was pretty easy to see because if you if you were just coming out of last summer and you said, which roster would you want of any roster in the league, you would have picked the Celtics. And 100%. All of a sudden, KD becomes available. And, you know, I'll never know what actually happened, but I, did, I am a little suspicious of the Nets. It's in their interest, right? If KD's getting, he, he's already demanded a trade for them to float out of Boston thing. All that does is undermine Boston. It's actually a really smart competitive move. I I have never been able to get to the answer of whether they actually talk trade with them or not. And you could say, you know, Lakeup wins the title. Wick was, uh, Lakeup was once in Wick's ownership group. Lakeup gets one over him. He's definitely puffing his chest after the finals. And, may, and maybe you're like, oh my God, we got to beat these guys. Wait, we can get Kevin Durant. And you kind of lose perspective for a second. But um I, I the whole thing bums me out, and it really makes me wonder. In this day and age, whether you can keep a young core together anymore, you know, like OKC probably did it the longest with uh mm-hmm. with Durant and Westbrook, but even that Harden only lasted a couple years. He left, and Durant finally wanted to get away from Westbrook. But for the most part, I do wonder if that the tribe called Quest analogy is that is that just the way it's going to be? There's only room for one in every city. There's only room for one franchise guy. And people are always going to gravitate toward it. I'd rather be the franchise guy over here than be part of something greater if I feel like I could be traded at any time, you know? Yeah. And I, I wouldn't blame yeah. them for that either. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's, it's a tough balance because, um, you know, I think that, like, I think Jalen wants to... I don't think Jalen is, is mad at, the, at his role on the team necessarily. No, he's um, been awesome this year. He's been awesome. And no, I just mean, like, his role on the team. You know, we just talked about how... Um, you know, how he, there's only room for one guy. I don't necessarily think that Jalen necessarily feels that way in Boston. I think he just, I think he feels slighted over the fact that, hey, I, you know, I've been doing, I've been doing this great work. I should just, I, I shouldn't be having to deal with all of the, these rumors. I think that's where it goes down to, you know, like. And he's, there, and he's right, by the way. He's 100% yeah. right. And like, I talked to him specifically, like, what is your relationship with, with, uh, 
with uh, with Jason Tatum and how do you guys coexist? He says on the floor, like we don't have no arguments. We're probably different people, but it's all straight. And I and not only did I ask him that, you know, I asked Marcus Smart, who um, I've I've increasingly have been seeing like he is that heartbeat of that of that locker room, but he knows everything, right? He kind of keeps that in check, and he's the one that's telling me, no, nah, man, they're cool, they're fine. They're, it's not it's not a thing where it's um, you know him versus them th- th- putting them against each other. I think it's uh, that's more of a I think that's more of a, a, it's 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 I don't think that it's 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 so I think that narrative is overblown. I think that they are two guys that can play with each other for for a long time. Uh, but I, I think that it's a bigger thing about it's about Jalen relationship with management and not necessarily his relationship and how he can coexist with Tatum. I think that they are fine. I think that it's a bigger thing of a respect thing. The Jalen t- the Jalen and Jason thing was always fine. I think I think anytime the team wasn't playing well, be, that became the media story of can these guys coexist? Can you have to does it make sense to have them both? And but it was always media stuff. It was never real. The stuff yeah. last summer was real. The fact yeah. that they didn't shut that shit down immediately. Um, you got quotes from a variety of people in this piece, including Kyrie Irving. Yeah. Who who I got to say, talk pretty eloquently about the problems with the year two Celtics, the year he was there, about how they had too many guys and too much competition and nobody pulling each other because that was exactly what I watched that whole season. They just had too many guys and too many guys wanted a piece of the pie and you could feel it the whole year and it never resolved itself. And I thought it was interesting that he actually came out and said, I also thought it was interesting that Jalen admitted that he didn't get along with Kyrie at all that second year. And then they, they belatedly have become friends, but we're not friends when they played together because we saw that too, but nobody wanted to admit that either. Yeah. I, I think that it's, um, I talked to, I talked to Kyrie in January before I went out to Boston and it was just, I didn't know kind of how he was going to answer the questions or if he was going to answer them at all. And, um, I was really just, I was just, as an eye opener, just how, just how, you know, I don't know. He was just very open with, with his thoughts on that. And it kind of made sense when you look in retrospect, because there were two things at play with those 18, 19 Celtics, which is all these young guys are really excited from the year before, you know, the Terry Rogers, the Jalen Browns. They all think, hey, man, we won with this core. This core can win, but they are, are still having to um, have problems with their role because they, you know, they see it was a very much of a divide between young and old on that team, you know, yeah. fr- from from my vantage point. And um, there was that was the one thing. And the second thing is Kyrie, you could tell, especially towards the end of that season, his mind just wasn't on the game. It wasn't it wasn't on um, what were the tasks was at hand. And, you know, you mean I, you can tell because he completely shit the bed in the Milwaukee series. Didn't seem like ex- he gave a shit. Okay. <laughs> exactly. We could tell that his <laughs> mind was <laughs> you could tell that his mind was somewhere else and that he was trying to figure that out. And, you know, this didn't really make the story, but he wasn't the leader that he wanted to be in Boston. He, he yeah. just quite frankly, wasn't. And I think that there was another th- uh, something else interesting that I got that didn't really make the story was Marcus Smart. And I asked Marcus, like, it seems like because I was at the uh, Nets Celtics game in January, like I think it was the last game that Kyrie played with the Nets. But I asked um, Marcus, like, how do you guys feel about Kyrie right now? And he basically called Kyrie a brother and that he is within the fabric of, you know, our team. So, um, and it's, it's just interesting, um, you know, his relationship 
Kyrie's relationship with Boston and his relationship, you know, with the with uh, you know the the guys that are the guys in Boston now, and and Tatum and and um, and and uh, Brown and all of these guys. Um, I think that they see him as a fabric of this, and I think that there's been some, you know, there's been some healing going on. I know not with the city of Boston and Kyrie necessarily, but with the people on that Celtics team, the the players. I think that they see Kyrie in a different light now. Kyrie, and now I think I, I don't know exactly why they see that now, but I think a lot of it has to be uh, Kyrie has just been at least internally uh, honest about his role and how it uh, didn't work out in Boston during that time. Well, I, I give him credit for that. The Hayward thing was a big piece of that season because he was the third best forward on that team. And Stevens really gave him a lot of rope and a lot of leeway. He was coming back off that terrible ankle injury. And I think that undermined a lot of this too because he just wasn't one of their best five guys but but was getting played like it. And I think that messed some stuff too. Um, we'll see what happens with this Jalen thing. It's funny, I talked about this. I hadn't even read your piece yet on Sunday's pod with Rosillo because it, it just felt like the tea leaves were floating a certain way where I was like, I, I don't know if he's going to be on the team next year. I, he might be on the team for the next 12 years, but it, yeah. it, it does feel like we are at a fork in the road with this Jalen thing. And I think, I think it's important because what him and Tatum have as a combo is so rare, not just for this generation of players, but even historically, like just two guys playing together for a long time and trying to win titles together and having some losses and coming back and, you know, lifting each other up, which is what Jalen has been doing a lot this year. There's games when Tatum doesn't have it and Jalen just has carried the team over and over again. That's why I think he has been one of the best 15 guys in the league. Um, maybe at least 20. Um, and that's why the All-NBA thing will be fascinating because you got, you have Tatum and you have Giannis. They're going to be first team. You're going to have Butler and Markkinen and Randall, I think, are all in. And then that six forward spot is basically between Jalen Siakam and DeRozan. I think Jalen has the best case. His team's doing the best. He has the biggest load. And the two guys together, Tatum and Brown, like that every time they play anybody, they're like, Tatum and Brown are coming to town tonight. So, you know, I do think he has a chance. Wait, before we go, um, give me 90 seconds on the dubs. You're in the Bay. Um, I saw them in person last week and did my whole thing about it. I just don't think they have it. I don't think there is an on-off switch with this team. The naysayers would say, well, just wait. We got to see Wiggins and Peyton, but I don't think they have it. I think the league's gotten better and they've gotten worse. What do you see? I know you're talking about this on Real Worlds with uh, Raja all the time, but what are you seeing? I don't, I don't, it's interesting because last year I, re, I remember seeing them. I was at the game when uh, the, the season opener against the Lakers last year and you could just see a magic. The magic was back for that night. There's no magic this season. You know, there's no good vibes. There's no, um, the one thing that I always said was last year, the Warriors got all the right wins. Now, did they have the 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 best the best record? No, but they always beat the Utahs, right? They beat the the they beat the Celtics or they beat the Celtics and they they beat the Nets in Brooklyn, you know, and they and they had all the right wins. This year, they don't have the right wins, and they don't ha- they can't win on the road. There's just too much bad juju going. On. I think, um, and they get their uh, ass kicked in some of these games. They get their yeah. asses kicked. And there's no rhyme or reason for it. And then here's another thing. This was the, this will tell you the most you could t- say about a, a Warriors season. That that game in Memphis really showed me a lot. Not the last game, but the game before, where Draymond Green does this big rollout about how he says Jalen uh, or how he says um, Dil- Dylan Brooks just doesn't have it. He goes in on Dylan Brooks the morning of the game, and then yeah. they get punched in the mouth. 
right? Like that usually that doesn't happen. If Draymond says something or if they usually have a locked in focus and they systematically beat their opponent on the road. That was prime uh, opportunity for the Warriors to have one of those signature wins and they got punched in the mouth. Not only they got punched in the mouth, Dylan Brooks was the one doing the punching in the mouth. And that usually doesn't happen with the Warriors. And I think that there's going to have to be, um, it's going to be an interesting summer. I think there's going to be a lot of changes this summer and it's just going to be mm. interesting how they look next season. That's my uh, hundred and something seconds for it. Listen, the law of the NBA is you can be bullies if you can back it up. Yeah. But we've also seen a lot of teams over the years that were kind of like washed up bullies, still trying to be bullies, and it gets ugly every time. They got a lot like, of washed up bully vibes right now, man. How many times are you going to tell us you got four rings? We get it, you know, after you're getting your ass whooped. <laughs> like, how many times are they going to do that? That that's been the story of the. It's they're definitely the washed uh, big homie at the at the rec center right now, telling about what they used to be this season. That's been their whole season all year. Yeah, it's like the the old Sopranos. The lowest form of conversation is remember when. Nobody but cares that's why, about the that's four why rings. That, honestly, though, that's why that punch was so vital the beginning of the season. That's why it was so it was so it was it was so important because it messed up the whole rest of what the season was going to be. It was just an unwanted distraction, and that set the tone for the rest of the season. That that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's too bad. I agree with you. I think there's going to be a lot of changes. And, you know, Bob Myers, I, I it seems like he's on his way out. He, the, these stories keep leaking about what's going to happen with him. And it's like, I, I think we kind of have a feel for what's going to happen. Um, yep. Clay's on his last year making just an insane amount of money for what the production is. The pool contract hasn't even started yet. And we drafted it on the worst contracts draft last week on this podcast. <laughs> and then Draymond, Draymond, People seem to think he's going to leave, but I, I don't know where he's getting $27 million much, next season. Draymond's pretty much just like over this season after what happened in the preseason has just been rolling out the red carpet for him to leave. You know, he kind of just puts little nuggets out there about even on his podcast or whatever he does. It, it seems like he's kind of, you know, res, just, just resigned to the fact that he's about to dip. It's it's run its course. So we'll see. But it's going to be interesting. If he does leave next year, I I, there's a lot of teams that I kind of want him to go on. I, I'm I'm, I'm yeah. very intrigued about where he goes and just like, I'm really intrigued to see what fuck you Draymond looks like at this age. I, I'm excited. Or whether it's even possible. The game I went to last week, he didn't have the same lift anymore, which, and usually the lift doesn't He was also back. in LA, Bill. He was also in LA. Oh, good point, Logan. See, this is your veteran experience here. <laughs> Um, I don't know what's going to happen with that team next year, but I guarantee half the guys will be different and yeah. they're going to probably blow it up in some different ways. The shame of it is Steph's been, you know, he's, he's looked like vintage Steph a lot of these nights and he just doesn't have the help. Um, okay. Logan Murdoch. Great story. Good to see some old school journalism on the ringer. I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> Thanks, and I'll bud. see you next week in LA cause we're doing a rewatchables together. I won't spoil the movie, but let's get it. See you soon, bud. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, award-winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. 
It's given me, my family, many others, real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60-day money-back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two S. Simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time, that's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. All right, here with Damon and Affleck together. This is the first time I've done pods and shows with both of you, but never together. So it's been a... This I don't is, think we've been decided. You decided by ourselves. Just wasn't quite <laughs> the, interesting. The last, the last time, uh, yeah, I guess we've the last time we did an interview together. There weren't such a thing as podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's uh, true. Well, you, but you guys are back. Like you formed this this company, made a movie. I so I screened the movie, and I was talking to Ben after, and he was saying. Um, he hit a point in his life where he just wanted to work with his friends, yeah, which exactly. I thought was a really interesting way to put it. What what took you guys so long to realize, like, wait a second, this guy's my brother. Why don't we just do more stuff together? It's an interesting question. When you're talking about that. It's like, I mean, we had, we got, I think there's a couple of things. W- one is that, you know, you're an actor and you've just become very conditioned to the idea that it's very tenuous. It's kind of hand to mouth. The phone could stop ringing at any time. So you get the opportunity somebody offers you a job, it's just almost impossible to say no, especially if it's like some director you've always wanted to work with or whatever. So there was one- Well, plus we, you're scrapping for jobs for years. Right, so, all so of you're hungry. You're yeah. So then yeah. all of a sudden, so you don't ever want, you're, you become almost compulsive. You don't want to stop. And and so Matt and I both started getting those kinds of opportunities at the same time. And we were kind of off like a shot, like just, you know, kind of trying to get while the getting was good, you know, with the idea that this, this could be gone tomorrow. And also there was definitely kind of, I think, an idea that like, hey, okay, now you guys, you know, this was successful, but uh, you don't want to be the Laurel and Hardy thing. You got to have your own thing too. And you're, you know, all, all of this various ideas about how, how you do this thing. And and it was, it didn't feel like, oh, you know, I mean, I, I can see from the outside, it's like they're not doing movies together, but it was like, we were hanging out and talking to each other, I was showing him all my movies. So in effect, you're kind of working together. You have a life. Yeah, we had a company friend. together. And, and yeah, yeah, we're we, working together. We just hadn't been in something, and we and and then we did the last duel uh, and wrote it, and the, the experience was so fun and rewarding. And I realized, having collaborated with other people uh, in the interim period, you know, periodically or all kinds of ways, like, wow, we really have a great collaboration. I love working with this guy, and I love hanging out with him. And you get older, and you have kids, and you have a life, and it's like you got to find a reason. You don't get to just kind of hang with your buddies on the couch every day, like you take that for granted and play video games. You, there has to be a reason you got to leave the house and go do something, and and it's your job. And, and so, also, I think the you know my dad died at the end of 2017. Not to get too macabre, but but you know he was a he was very close to Ben, and he um, obviously very close to me. Um, and that was a definite perspective shift, right? Where you go like. This is this isn't promised to any of us and it doesn't go on forever. And if we don't start 
like getting proactive about working together, we're, we're not going to work together. It's just going to be, it's, you know, and, and what a, what a, an insane opportunity to even have, like <laughs> to right. be able to work together at this stage of our lives and careers is fucking amazing. I also so realize, like, why not I'd avail rather do, you know, something that I don't like, whatever isn't afforded as much like status or wrecking, you know, like uh, with Matt, then something else, you know, bigger and fancier with someone else. I mean, fortunately, that's not the case. I'm actually riding his coattails, but just saying, <laughs> like, that's the truth. I thought, like, I, it, that's the quality of it is the, is, and it's, it's Jason and Chris Tucker and Vile. Like, if you can work with great people who are good people too, you know, it, it's so much more rewarding personally and, and professionally. And I mean, not to mention somebody's just your best friend, you have a shorthand with you, you just want to hang out with. I mean, the only thing I can imagine would be better is, working with your kids. And I'm, I'm pretty sure my kids have ruled that out. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny what you mentioned about as you get older, cause we're all around the same age. When you get older, these friends that you have that you just, they're in your life day after day after day from college or high school or whatever. And then you hit your twenties, same thing. Then as you get older, you're like, oh, I haven't seen him for a year. Yeah. I haven't seen him for a year and a half. And Time fight. You almost have, have to like proactively like look for really things. good friends that yeah. I love who I haven't seen for years. Yeah. And then with, the, with texting and stuff, it feel, I feel like I stay in touch with my closest friends, but I don't talk to them. Like in the old days, you would just be like, oh, I got to I gotta call, call Matt. Yeah, I haven't yeah, talked yeah. to Matt in a while. Well, you would talk thing, for it, an it, hour. The, the whole like, like our age, the people still have Facebook. You know what I mean? Like the people still on Facebook <laughs> and like the Facebook, I still can see my friends and stuff on Facebook. You sort of have the illusion of maintaining the relationship because you're aware of what's happening with them, but you're yeah. not aware of it because you've had that interpersonal communication. And I do think it's different. It's a way that there's an illusion that social media kind of fosters closeness when it also can foster a kind of, of separateness. Yeah, it's like semi-closeness. Great, but you, there was a couple of movies that you almost did. Like there were some, what was that Fritz Peterson, Mike Kekich movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. You worked on that for a while, right? Yeah, we had, yeah, we, we wanted, it wasn't like we were ruling it out. Yeah. It just was a, it's kind of a function of like what's next, what's available, what's happening, you know, and and we 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 like you say we had production company together that was very different kind of company than this, which is a sort of production companies are basically pass through companies yeah. where you have you know the studio gets the first option on your stuff and they give you money for your assistant and someone to kind of develop things, but they own the material and versus a, a, a an agnostic independent financed company that can be you know a signatory with the unions and do all the things that the studios effectively do uh, in, in, uh, in our case with the exception of distribution and marketing which is what you just started right. what was that like a year and a half ago two yeah. years ago yeah. with our equity yeah. yeah. so how did that what it, what unfolded with that how did you even decide to do that was that like you're at dinner one night after three glasses well, of wine just being like eh, no it came should we out, do this it, it really came out of this kind of longer conversation we were having about what we want in, yeah in our lives like really a very sober conversation about what life what kind of life we want to build for the rest of the road here yeah and and so and, and like be, for me it's like I want to be able to have, I, I can't just be going, uh, you know, chasing tax rebates and be acting in a movie in, you know, in, in New Orleans or and then in Texas and running around because I'm divorced and I have my kids half the time and then cutting out a bunch of that time. And these years are just too important. So it meant that I was really open to the idea of like, I can be exclusive to a company and go into the office every day and help other people make their movies. And yeah, um, you know, periodically, if I, if it's for the company, I'll get to direct a movie and do this. But it's really like I also wanted to have that lifestyle of stability and be home for dinner and know that my kids to know that I was going to be there, not just sort of where's, you know, his dad's, you know, off and back all the time. 
So you guys have an office. We yeah. do. We do. It's a uh, 9200 Sunset Boulevard. You actually don't. Remember that. <laughs> That's not the address. <laughs> so how, so you pick an office. Do you We're have an office together? Now. Or is no, it no. like two separate offices next no, to well, each other? I live, you go old school? I live in New York now. So it, it, I'm so so uh so I'm in and out of LA. But okay. it's an office with like three physical production executives and a head of post-production and visual effects and uh, business affairs and lawyers and accountants and comptrollers. And so how many projects do you guys want to do a year? Like how big does this get? Or is this like, well, what's the difference not, between like fun the and ambition, a Like a lot of things people just ambition is, is always scale. Like yeah. they're synonymous. And with this, with our business, part of what we want to try to do in terms of the generating the ability to have the autonomy and the confidence of our partners that we're going to do something good, which is the only brand we can, you know, aspire to really hey, make a movie with us. We'll do our best to really make it good. Uh, is that is it can't just be, you know, heaping movies on movies. We want to try to do movies we can focus on, but we also want to give, you know, opportunities to people who are, who are friends of ours where, you know, for example, we were, we were talking with, uh, um, Steven Soderbergh about potentially working with him. And this is a guy where you're talking about a very low lift, you know, it's basically like, go ahead. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And that's, there's a real joy. Yeah, here's your finance. You don't have to manage, <laughs> you know, you know what I right, mean? Right. Uh, well, right. Cole Hauser's out. He's too famous now. <laughs> I, I'm I, kind of disturbed by the fact that my wife really likes Yellowstone and the part of me thinks that she's really drawn to the romance between <laughs> Cole Hauser and the uh, um, uh, woman who plays his wife, who's excellent, whose name escapes me now. But and I kind of feel like, wait, you know, don't like it too much. Beth. Yeah. The, yeah. Kathy, Kathy Riley, right? Who's British, that? by yeah. the way, which is amazing. She was, oh, she, her first so, thing was flight. So she was awesome. That was the first time I remember seeing her in flight. It was like, oh my God, who's this? I, I first saw her in this and I was like, Actually, Jen sh showed me like a clip off of Instagram of a monologue she has in the car with the kid about like the ways to become yeah rich, um, and it's uh, and, and then she was like, "Oh, I love this this story of these two. And I was like, "Wait a minute, with with Cole with Hauser, Cole Hauser, <laughs> what do you love about it? What do you? It's, do you guys he's get great. It? He's great at the show. You've worked with like like thirty plus years, and you have all these people pass through your life. It must be hilarious or fun to watch when." somebody belatedly becomes big like that. I, I, like that's I the was biggest always, TV show we have. To tell you the truth, I was always mystified that Cole wasn't a giant movie star. When from the time yeah. he, we worked with him, he was 16. And I, I'll never forget, we were driving. We, we, yeah, me too. And we were driving out of uh, Bill Ricca or wherever we were back into Boston, me and you and that old Cadillac, the, the blue one that you had. And we were like, all right, we like leaving set for like the first week driving into Cambridge. And, uh, and, and we're like, all right, None of the guys are around from school. To, all right. Leaving me and you out. Who's the fucking best actor here? And both of us at the same time were like Hauser. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. I mean, he was, was he was raw talent, raw like, talent, really? just astonishing. And like to take nothing away from like the rest of the, the other cast. All, look, all good actors. One of them just won an Oscar. You know, we've right. never Brendan, won an actor. Yeah, Brendan right. just won a fucking Oscar. So spectacular. So great. And I love that guy. And we've always loved, loved him. Just the sweetest soul. And uh, very deserving. And, and, but that's that. So I, I didn't, I don't say that to, to demean the other actors. There's great actors in yeah. that movie. Uh, it's you just know, to Anthony say Rapp, Anthony and Chris, and, Chris and like, yeah, there's yeah. Randall. Like, there's a ton of really good actors. It's just that from the time we saw him, he well, was, he's in Goodwill Hunting. I mean, we were like, yeah. this is the guy we want to, Cole's great. And he's fabulous on that. I mean, you think like he is very convincing as that guy. I mean, I think America believes he is Rip. You know what I mean? Right, it's right. Uh, and he's, it's a he's, perfect character. It's a yeah, perfect character for him. Yeah, for and, sure. You know, it was 
And uh, there's also the converse, which is, um, or if it's the converse, this is a related phenomenon, which is guys that you knew when they were, you know, junior or mailroom or whatever, who are now like running things. Right. And you're like, wow, that's the big boss. That happens huh. in sports oh, yeah, too. Like, yeah. I mean, but it happens yeah. like, like, like I remember Pam Abdi, right? And she's, and she's running it's a studio and she, and she, she was uh, working with Danny DeVito when I did the Rainmaker 25 years ago, Pam and I were like kids together, like in our twenties, like met on that movie. And like, now she's running a studio. Yeah, like they're giving people our age that much authority. You know, it's kind <laughs> of uh, unsettling. Yeah. That happens in sports too, where somebody who is like, you know, the video manager person on especially on the Patriots. A GM. Yeah, the <laughs> Patriots they just kept keep moving up I mean Jimmy Patera we've known for years and years and years and years and I always like first of all by the way I couldn't think of a better guy to do that job and he's an amazing guy but it does trip me out like Jimmy runs ESPN like right. he's the boss of ESPN like, you know what I mean which <laughs> just seems like the coolest job in the world you know and he's the nicest guy but he's a guy when you're you know 29 and you know, the guy's 20, you don't think to yourself, this guy's going to run the giant sports network to which I aspire. Right. And you know, it's or Stuber or Sean or sure. like all these yeah. guys that we, we knew. Yeah. Sean Bailey mm-hmm. knew forever. Yeah. Um, when, when you guys weren't working together, did he ever make a movie that you were like, why the fuck didn't he ask me to, First of all, he didn't ask me to be in the town. He gave that part to Renner. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. What happened with that? Didn't ask me to do Argo, which he, which I could have, I could have crushed the lead in that movie, but he took it for himself. Could have, yeah, Yeah. but I would have made less money. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they didn't pay you to direct it. (laughs) No, it was the way I was subsidizing that uh, part of life. Yeah, exactly. Wait, go backwards, because as you know, I love the town. So you see Jim, the Jim character, and you're like, what the fuck? No, well, actually, I'm I'll tell right you what here. Happened. Let so me tell you the truth. Here. We couldn't afford Matt Damon. We, <laughs> you know what I mean? By a country mile. Matt Damon costs what the movie costs. You know what I mean? Is that true, Matt? Back then, yeah. <laughs> I was in the middle of the born run yeah. there. I was yeah. doing really well. Um, but, uh, but the thing about the town, actually, I remember getting that script. Uh, it had a different director. I, I read the script. I thought it was terrible. And I remember being on the phone with Patrick, who's been our agent for 30 years now. And uh, we were just talking about something else like a few weeks later. And I was like, what's Ben up to? Because I, for some reason, hadn't talked to Ben. And he goes, oh, Ben's going to do that movie, The Town. And because I was you like, were like in Are... Germany doing the born. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. I was like, what the? F- no. I was like, no, he can't. What are you talking about? He goes, no, 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 no. He's got a whole take on it. I'm like, he's not doing it with it. He goes, no, no, no. He's going to direct it. And he's going to rewrite the entire thing. And I went, oh, oh, okay. All right. Uh, you know, uh, and that, but I, my, my gut reaction was like, this is a disaster. Don't let him do it because the script that I'd read was so bad, but he did a comprehensive, I mean, he just a page one rewrite on the thing. I knew you at that point. Cause you had done gone baby uh-huh. gone uh-huh. and you were telling me you were doing that. It was set in Charlestown. Yeah. And I remember we talked about it yeah. and you had done in gone baby gone. You really cared about the authenticity of the mm-hmm. accents and the people. I mean, there are people in that movie who probably never acted again. And I was yeah, like, you just, are. if you're doing Charlestown, died shortly thereafter. Yeah. yeah if you're doing Charlestown, you got to get Charlestown correct, which I think you did, but you really put some real thought into that every was my piece of kind that. of, I mean, I always felt like, look, I really wanted to direct. And I knew that somebody told me like 90% of the directors in the DGA who directed feature films only directed one. Now that Ooh, may be an exaggeration, Jesus. but I don't think it's that big an exaggeration. That's like, it's getting the second movie. Mm-hmm. is the really hard thing because you have, it's so competitive and it's such an amount of, 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 of kind of trust and commitment who the director is and that it's, uh, 
a big deal. So, and also, by the way, when it got begun, like I wasn't going to get any more jobs as an actor. So this was really it. And I thought like at that point, I, so you thought that slump was that bad that you were in? Like like, that was like, that's it. You will never be on a poster again. The the extent to which you're kind of conditioned already to see your career as an actor as tenuous and, and subject to the whim of what's cool and what's what's hits and what doesn't. And, and, um, and you're not altogether wrong. And in that sense, it was a pretty, like, it's hard to make it as an unknown in this business. Very hard. It's harder to make it as a known that they don't like, it's like, (laughs) no, no, you don't have to come in. We know your work. We just don't want you. And that's, this is the function of, because so many people make decisions based on, I was talking to Chris Tucker about this yesterday. Like, just who's, you know, so many people suggest we should get so-and-so and you go, oh, why? What do they do? No, well, he, they're in such and such. Will you see it? No, but I hear it. It's like just what's cool and what's the thing, what's current right. is there's a real kind of hunger for that. And I wasn't cool. I wasn't cool at all because, you know, I had made some movies that didn't work and I had kind of been, you know, in, in part, you know, my own sort of uh, like lack of awareness of how sort of, or, or even being willingness to be considered like how I come off and viewing that as like inauthenticity in and of itself. And also just the fact that movies didn't work um, meant that like, I was probably, you know, I was much more likely to have a career as a director in my opinion. And also I thought, wouldn't that be nice to not have to be out in front of it? Yeah. To not have to be out there doing podcasts no to not have to like to you know like promote it right and so then you just think well okay if if it's all on the line here like i'm just gonna i have no shame about just playing right to my strengths like what do i do best what's the best thing i have to bear here and i'll I'll focus on that and in my opinion that was like okay i i love and respect actors i'm gonna make this a performance driven movie i know my brother's brilliant actor and um i'm gonna center it on his performance, which is, and I have the advantage of people not knowing who he is as well so that like he can surprise the audience. And then I, I felt like I understood what it was like in my experience to grow up in Boston and to try to reproduce that authentically. And, you know, that, that, that was about it. That was my strength. Well, you so needed a- to get, you needed to win the creative chops back from yeah, the right. public. Yeah, I need to have the sense that like you'd gone into that Us Weekly Netherland and of you just can, and you can't overstate you can't overstate that Us Weekly Netherland. People won't won't be able to relate today because it's twenty years ago. But it was I remember Patrick. I remember being in Prague and on the phone with Patrick because Ben was on the cover of Us every week. And I remember Ben saying to me, he goes, "We talked and he was like, I'm in the worst place you can be." He goes, "I'm selling. I can sell magazines and not movie tickets. It's the fucking." Yeah, and they don't Worst pay you for selling magazines. You can they don't yeah. pay you for selling yeah. magazines, and and and, and you, you can't get, get a to job. Do what you love, you, yeah, exactly. And, and, and you're also in a Patrick called, Patrick called the editor that woman. Remember, mm, like, stop. begged her, begged her, please stop, please just stop. And she said, man, she said, just I mean, you can imagine like what, the, what how the editor of us Mag- us weekly would respond. You needed to that. the Brangelina love triangle to save you. Yeah, which basically, I think it that, eventually that, that was what well, that was what they just moved on to that, and then they keep going. And what else happened was the internet. Yeah. which is that was the the appetite. It wasn't once a week. It was like, what's every 15 minutes? And social media, I mean, this is further down. It becomes so diffuse yeah. that in a weird way, it became more difficult to be overexposed because there were so many outlets and they were like, 
you know, that back then, if there were three magazines and you were on the cover of all three every week, it just felt like this was the only person you saw and it was overwhelming and they're jamming these people down their throats. Whereas now you kind of, you follow who you want to see. It's more bespoke. And you well, can- there's way more influencers, like starting in 06, you have YouTube, so you have the YouTube people. Then you have the Instagram people and the TikTok people. Back in the early 2000s, we had athletes, movie stars, mm-hmm. musicians, and TV actors. And that was it for- are celebrities. And that's what's interesting about, to me, like one of the things about this movie is that it's the beginning of the idea that a person is a brand. Like Mm. that would have been a strange thing to say in 1984, what's your brand? My brand, what do you mean? Like, but now the brand, now everyone's a brand. You're quite literally kind of curating your brand on Instagram. You're selling your own coffee. Take take for granted that like, what can I, what does my brand mean? And what, what, uh, products, you know, and if lucky I can, whether I'm opening boxes or I'm selling, you know, what products, or, you know, the, the idea is to establish a brand, an association with the self, and then find like what ways of making money by means of connect, associating that brand with a consumer good, can I profit from and sell to sell as a business? Instagram is a, is a business in a lot of ways for a lot of people. And like without, you know, and, and now because that's just taken for granted. So people naturally pursue that. But if you're old and, you know, one of those, like when I was a boy, people like, right. like we are, there's still a certain kind of, I find it kind of um, strange. The idea that a person, because a brand is a fixed thing. It's a, it made my view is like a product. It's, I'm sure saying, we all think about it with our kids. I'm sure the, the phone and the selfies, all that yeah. stuff. You went, you took kind of, you were in the opposite place in the, when he was going through all that stuff in the two thousands, you were, I don't know, you you were, I don't want to say avoiding it, but you were making movies in different countries and you were way more mysterious, which seemed intentional. Cause like when Goodwill Hunting took off and you had a couple celebrity relationships and you were in that hole, then that was it. Nobody saw you again. Yeah. I mean, I think I got lucky and on the one hand that I just fell in love with a woman who wasn't in the business, you know? Yeah. And so that just you know, when you when when your partner is a celebrity, it's like it it doesn't double the exposure. It like it's, it's like quintuples it. Yeah, yeah. It really, it feels exponential and crazy. And I remember living. You know, I lived down the street from Ben for you know with, and his first wife for years. And going over there, there were always cars parked out front of his house, not outside of my house ever. I walked around that neighborhood. I rode my mountain bike around. I never had any problem. Nobody ever <laughs> took my picture, but like. But Ben had Ben couldn't come out of his house without, and a lot of the people were there for his what his for, with for Jen Garner. Ben, ben yeah. was like, she's on these magazines you've never heard of in the Midwest, where people want to know like how she parents and how you know what I mean. And so it was like the interest in them as a as an entity was just yeah. Some of it is, I think people assume naturally from outside that you have more control over it than you do. Right. Like I often see people, uh, they'll look at like, you know, whoever's like young and cool and now in a relationship or something and they'll go, oh, they're, they're out there chasing it or flaunting it. And I don't think like, no, they're hiding actually. They're running away. They are desperately trying to avoid this. As one of the reasons why I think people always think I look sad or pissed off is because the pictures that you see, it's self-selecting. You only see me at the times where I'm standing there with my kids and five guys are following me and shouting things, which brings a feeling out in you that is not a happy feeling, which is right. leave me you and feel my invaded. family the fuck alone because it's invasive and inappropriate. Now, 
So then if those are the photos you see are naturally not particularly and they're like, he looks nature. sad. Yeah, like it's sad. <laughs> but what about the photos to... of you taking out the garbage or getting a Starbucks? There was a lot of those. I take out. There's the... Ben getting a Starbucks. Yeah. yeah. I, I have no idea why that's interesting to anybody. It's not even interesting Look, to he's me. holding the Starbucks in his left hand. It's fucking thing in the world. You know what I mean? Like, what is, I know I'm not that interesting because I'm in it taking out the trash. You know, it, I don't know. I think something happens where there's, where there is a, the perception becomes the reality in terms of value, where it's like, well, we've seen pictures of this person before, we've run them before, so this person's the one they want and they sell them, right. even despite the fact that, you know, it, it, it was so incredibly uneventful and banal. And I thought like, if I can make my life as boring as possible, perhaps this will stop being a part of my life because it really isn't something I ever craved or wanted or even liked, like extra attention. I'm self-conscious. I don't like it. I'm not that comfortable. I prefer to, that's why I would be, happy to just be directing movies. And, and I, and I really envy the thing I envy most about Matt is the, the extent to which he's been able to, to avoid and been spared that kind of thing, because actually it's, it really is the thing of like, been you know, spared is the, is the right term rather than avoid. Cause I mean, I remember watching Brad on oceans, like you couldn't see a more normal dude from the Midwest, like dudes from Missouri. He's like super, super chill, just a really nice, normal guy. And the world would not let him be normal. Like the amount of like traveling around, like doing a press tour with Brad. I mean, I, I could, you know, George used to describe as people's people would step on our faces to try to get to Brad. Like <laughs> it was just like unbelievable the amount of attention and, and incredible how, how little he courted it and how yeah. little he wanted it or tried. There was nothing that dude could do. Like there was no, and so I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's less about avoidance and more about like, you just get lucky. Like, I feel like I got lucky. And there's a kind of, there is a, like, I always think like, oh God, be careful what you wish for. Like there is a fantasy, right? We always say, I'm going to be rich and famous. Uh, as if like, you know, the two are synonymous in a way with like these both, these are the two things that will deliver happiness. Just yeah. as a sort of a saying, uh, leaving aside what ambitions about wealth and what that means. Like you understand that people see money as this is going to provide my basic needs. And then something, you know, I was winning the lottery. That'd be a fantasy. I'd get a, I pay for everything, pay for my kids and I have a great car and, you know, buy the, whatever the motorboat I always want or something. Um, but the aspiration to be famous is really even less, uh, is even more sort of missing it because my, there's not a lot to be to recommend it. Yeah, to recommend that it it makes you it makes life weird. People are weird. You can become weird because your echolocation, your it's radar, better chance gets of becoming weird off. than not becoming weird. But it's such a mind fuck, right? Because the world doesn't treat you the same. So it's like, how do you not become weird? It's much harder. You have to be much more vigilant. Like I was very. We talked a lot about this. Like really protecting the dynamics in your most crucial kind of close primary relationships, right? And not let it get infected by this weirdness, right? Because those are the things that are going to sustain you and keep you going, keep you sane, right? Real, real relationships with real people that, that, that require compromise and pushback and, and you don't always get to be right because you can surround yourself with a bunch of superficial relations, a bunch of people who jerk yeah, people you off and tell you you're great. You're working for yeah, you and and tell you your yeah. shit don't stink. And believe me, there is, that is tempting, right? Who doesn't want to just be told they're fucking great yeah. all day long, right? Am but, I a genius? I thought so. Yeah, but, <laughs> yes. but there's no kind of recipe to go out of your fucking mind it also ruin the thing probably that makes whatever it is that you're doing like authentic and resonant with people because you you start getting a false impression you know yeah. I mean, if everyone's laughing at your jokes and 
again, I spent a lot of time with Chris yesterday. We went up to with, uh, uh, to Beaverton and Chris Tucker, and we were on the plane and uh, talking about how, like, he was saying, if you have those relationships and those friendships, particularly as a comic, it's 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 poisonous because you think right. it's funny and you get out there on stage and all of a sudden it's, you get corrected very quickly, you know, and you you want to have people to tell you the truth. And I think it's actually as a comic, there's a quicker means to get a correction, which is go into a club and say the joke and see what happens, versus. You know, it's harder. It takes a lot longer to get that feedback. Like this whole idea that everyone was telling me was great and we built this movie around and we spent a year constructing, you know, I wish somebody had said, you know, I'm not sure people are going to identify with this character or this doesn't seem that plausible or maybe most people aren't interested in the foibles of the like super rich or something. You know what I mean? Like, and those things, you know, if you, it's hard enough to kind of maintain a sense of, because that's, to me, what movies are. What's going to create engender empathy in people? What's going to connect with them and touch them? And a big part of that, more than we think, is about projection and reflecting and connecting with something about your own life in the audience. And if your life starts to be a total departure from the experiences that people in the audience are going to have, the audience is going to get smaller. It's also way harder to go through something when you're that public. Like, we're seeing it right now at John Morant with on Memphis. We're taping this, like, near the end of March. But you know, he's gone through some stuff. And the the thing that I've heard just through the grapevine was like, this guy went from all of a sudden he's potentially the face of the league, like a little like what, what uh, Jordan, the position he was in in mm-hmm. the movie you made. Um, he's in a really small city for the NBA. He's in Memphis. And he has the chance to be one of the biggest stars we have, you know? And some people handle that or process that differently, makes a couple bad choices. And then that becomes, you're trending on Twitter every day. I think you're the biggest story in the league. The real difference um, in terms of social media, not just for for people who are high profile in some ways, but it could be for anybody, is that we can be defined by a choice, a day, yeah, a a slip of a long thing, and that you can carry with you forever. And every time you go apply for a job, you know somebody googles you or looks you up, and they see this post you did something you said in college or whatever it is. Like, that's what I've told my kids. Like, you know, this idea that you're so free to be filming yourself, saying things, sharing this stuff is you're going to carry that with you forever. And that's a heavy thing to bear, especially in a, in a world that has become both, you know, more sensitive and more tolerant and more sensorious. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all new 2024 Nautilus hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I understand that some things you just want to keep private. Maybe it's something you don't want anyone to know, or maybe you think it's something minor, so why bother? But if you keep everything bottled up, if you let those emotions sit there and fester, it could be really, really bad for you. Sometimes it depends on what kind of family you're from. Like my dad's family is one of those. They bottle everything up, bottle everything up, and then they all just get mad at each other. Listen, talking things through is more helpful than you think. If you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend some therapy. Think about the things you can get out of therapy. First of all, a sounding board. You can learn better coping skills. 
you can learn how to set some boundaries, maybe how to empower yourself a little better day to day. And if you want to give therapy a try, well, I have an answer. BetterHelp, a convenient and flexible way since it's entirely online right now. It's easy to get started too. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Bill Simmons today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Bill Simmons. Would you let your kids act? I mean, if they, if, look, we were told explicitly and in every single, yeah, yeah, literally told <laughs> not to do it by everybody, including our parents. I mean, and including by each other's parents. Yeah. His mom told me not to do it. You know what I mean? She's like, oh, you guys are smart. She why knew don't you, you do- were no good. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> she why don't you right go? Through you. She's like, be a doctor or a lawyer. Like, why don't you go? You know, and we were like, no, we really want to do this. Like, so I, I do think that, that if, if you're really meant to do it, it doesn't matter what anybody says. And if I have a kid like that, I, I, I hope that my kids find something that they're that passionate about. I mean, one of my kids likes to do theater, which I think is fabulous. I mean, I think our experience in high school in our theater program was one of the most formative and meaningful of our lives. And mm. I still think often of our teacher, Jerry Specka, and how how much a difference he made in our lives. And, us, and also people who didn't go on to do theater, but who just learned a lot about kind of life and work and values and how you work with others. And, uh, and so I'm like, I see my, my child doing theater now in eighth grade doing the kind of middle school stuff, starting to look at, maybe I'll do high school plays. I think that's wonderful. That's spectacular. That can be a great experience. Um, I'm not sure that you want to, I, I, I would not want or wish fame or attention or that kind of thing that comes with the other kind of acting potentially on a person that young it's 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 hard enough and i think when you're younger it's you're even more difficult well there's a you know my my brother always had this theory that i really i think is 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 true which is that you you retard kind of socially and emotionally at the moment you become famous and you stop growing you you stop growing you stop and, and i think that's true kind of going back to what i was saying before because everybody's your subjective experience changes entirely yeah, right? it's never the same. Like you, you, your experience of the world, and and that's the mind fuck. You go, the world isn't different, but it's totally different for me. It's like my code in the Matrix got rewritten, but just mine, right? And so, that what can really happen is it kind of stunts your growth and development because nobody's, because Ben says, like the echolocating you're doing, what's coming back to you is so fucking weird that it, it's 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 kind of. It's, is, it's, it's stunting you basically. Which is why I think one of the best things that ever happened to me really was to get really cold in like 2003 or four and all of a sudden realize I'm not that funny. I, well, maybe I'm not all that interested. You know what I mean? Like there are people aren't laughing at my jokes as much and aren't uh, a lot of people all of a sudden aren't calling me back and realizing really a blessing, get the opportunity to get a break in there and realize who my friends were. And realize what these relationships professionally were, what they weren't, and to understand and accept them on those terms, but not to have any illusions. And to have friends who love you and care about you for life, and or or even for a period of time, based on a mutual affection, empathy, and love, and mm. and then you have people who want to, you know, build relationships. And relationships are a means through which to kind of 
advance their careers. And that's one of the things they teach you, right? Like make relationships, get out there, get to know people. But those aren't friends. And they're not people that you should ever expect to rely on to um, like be there for you or care about you if if you're not a relationship that represents a means of advancement for them. And and also it gave me a, That's a, a tough humility. lesson to learn though. It hurt. And it hurts. Yeah, I've, I've been through some of that too, where it's like, especially when I left ESPN and it was, it was interesting to see some of the, some of the things shift where it's mm. like, oh, I thought you were on my side. I, I guess we were just it's very easy a business to think Like we want to think like it's because of, of who I am. Well, yeah, I have these people, they like to get along with them and yeah. you just think, and it's, uh, it was very telling. And, and, and also I, I found like when things picked up, like it was really useful to, Patrick was really good about this and people, and I just, I remember self-consciously going like, I don't want to hold any grudges or get back at anybody or now. Well, you didn't, it was like, I remember Patrick telling me, we're going to welcome back all our old friends. Right. And that was the best <laughs> advice. Is said, that what he said? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course I was like, well, why did I, why about And he said, no, nah, I think we're just going to welcome back all our old friends. Just hold your head high. Because, you know, you know what it is. And I, what also told me a lot about him. This is a guy who, who stayed working really hard for me. His career kept going up and things kept getting better for him and he became more and more senior, but our relationship didn't change. And There's a great story about him and Patrick that was one of my favorites that, um, he, he, after, you know, Gili came out, you know, Ben had a series of movies that didn't work <laughs> and they went to a screening of, uh, of surviving, surviving Christmas, Christmas. And they're on like the lot at DreamWorks and Ben's like, okay, this is the one in the chamber I have and it's bad. And this is going to, this is going to come out in three months and it's going to be another wave of, it's going to be the, you're on the other team and Larry hits the three, yeah, right. <laughs> the dagger. but Patrick, um, sat him down outside and the, the lot and dreams were sat on, sat down on some steps and goes, okay, this is it. Like, this is the bottom of the mountain. We're, we're here right now. This is, this is the fucking, this is as low as it gets professionally. Can't get any lower step by step. I'm, I'm, we're walking together back up to the top of the mountain and so years later when he won best picture which is like i mean that's the that's the absolute pinnacle in our business right yeah he reminded patrick of that story at the after party he put the oscar in front of him and he told him that and he started to cry and he told patrick that story and patrick called me i was i was in new york and patrick called me the next day and told me that and just but brought me to t- i was like it was the most beautiful story but that's patrick too you know i mean that's the kind of well, person we that- see you find out who your friends are because you find the people who are like well okay you're not helping my career. You're not successful. You're actually probably an albatross, (laughs) but like, I care about you and I'm going to stand by you. And that there's something so fundamentally moving about that, about our need to have people who will, who will have a kind of unconditional love and affection for us and be with us through thick and thin. You know, I remember the first time you and I did a podcast, Matt, you, we were talking about when he hit the cold streak and how mad you were that, people were comparing the two of you and like, well, look at Matt. And yeah, this is like, furious. that's the good way. And this is the bad way. And you were really passionate and mad about it. And I don't think you had really talked about that before. And of course, then that became, you know, well, the stories for the next couple of days from the podcast, but. Um, it was really hard to watch your best friend be so misunderstood. Yeah. You know, I knew, I knew, I knew I was in a unique position to know how talented Ben was. Right. Because I'd written, you know, we wrote our first movie together. We grew up together. I did fucking high school theater with the guy. Like yeah. I know everything about him as a talent. And so to watch like your friend get fucking dunked on, right. And be, and be like, 
humiliated, really. Like they were, the coverage was so mean, right? Mean and mean to Jennifer, to, 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 mm-hmm. to J-Lo at the, at the time. I mean, just fucking awful, right? And, and I was just like, it, it felt abusive and, uh, and also really deeply misunderstood, fundamentally misunderstood. So when he, when he became this great, you know, director and everybody kind of welcomed him back, you know, the press too, mm. right? Like all these like incredibly fickle, non-friends, right? <laughs> Welcome, welcomed him back. You know, <laughs> at least it felt like, all right, there, everything's right with the force again. Like now people, at least people understand how great this dude is. And, you know, I, I, it just, I was so angry on his behalf for years. Um, you know, just this way, like people would say, oh, Ben, and like, you know, like a subtle eye roll or something. Just don't fucking roll your, you've, you know, who are you? <laughs> like, you motherfucker. Like, a part of uh, us, like, you be, we as a culture, like, we, we, it's sort of like, really, it's just a big high school. You know what I mean? It becomes <laughs> like, who's in, who's out? Who are the people? Who do we like? Are we like them now? You know, what I mean? without any, are they in, they're out? And there's some of that, you know, so that it builds its own momentum, both positive and negative. So it's become the person about whom it's appropriate to make the joke about like, them being talentless. They, they probably don't really have any general opinion about like what real talent is or pay enough attention to, right. to like, I really think about what constitutes talent in filmmaking. You know, it's more for, for the people like writing the quip, you know, it's, it's, it's a momentary kind of glib thing. And, and it becomes like, Oh, we, I can think of other people who have gone through that who are people who it's like, just becomes okay to make fun of They go, Well, like not like so-and-so. And you think like, and I obviously having had this, been through this and by the way i don't i don't uh like i don't shirk any of my own responsibility i could there's i'm sure there's choices i could have made that were better that were smarter but it also was not it also definitely was a thing where it become you become okay to kind of pick on and there is a dynamic of that which i can see now in the media totally apart from there are people about whom becomes okay and there's an increasing culture now actually of of kind of snarkiness and the the sort of reward of that and the retweeting is really if you say something really funny and nasty you get re- retweeted and there's a, a like an almost a cultural sport of who can be kind of the most uh, snarky about about stuff it's not all of culture but that that current is present and maybe it's part of human nature and it's certainly no fun to be on the downside of that our guy Brady's in this right now it feels like like the the last. I don't know, yeah. six, seven months he had yeah. where it felt like he was in the top of the world forever. And now it's like, it, and it's different for him because when you're done with football, you're done with football. You guys can act or direct or, you know, movies can go on forever. For him, I think when, you, yeah, when you're when you the best at what you guy, do and now it's over. It's like, well, okay, so you, yeah. And I don't even, honestly, I, I really do try to avoid, I mean, actually I didn't try to, but I'm just not all that interested in the gossipy stuff. It just depresses yeah. me. So like, I just, Love Tom. And I don't think I would even click on something that yeah. was like negative about the guy. So I can genuinely tell you, like, I believe you. And I don't even know what it is people are saying, but I do know that it's, there is also the sort of the British call like the tall poppy syndrome. Like it's fun to watch it grow. And then it's fun to cut it down. You know, yeah. um, we like to, that's what drama is. That's what storytelling is. It's like, right. We know as fun as the six Super Bowls. That was really fun. Yeah, that was enjoyed, pretty fun. Enjoyed that part. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> When when you guys lived together, how long did you live together? Who was in Felt charge like of forever? Who was yeah. in charge of the bills? Years, years and years. Who we split them. 
we 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 split but somebody's the, the when people live together somebody's like the alpha dog with stuff somebody's worried about hey, we alpha don't have dog, if you're the one who's like you Matt, they're turning off our electricity <laughs> <laughs> we have to pay this we were like, all, who's actually, cleaning we, the toilet you know who's we had in been charge? so used to having a shared bank account from high school that like i remember your shared we, bank account in high school yeah yeah mm-hmm. we had a bay banks account that we shared which we used i still we, have the checkbook i found the checkbook did you really yeah. just put that on yeah. your right i wonder if it will get this bay no bay banks isn't there anymore um probably not uh, but, uh, but we, we, it was always like, as long as one of us had a job, as long as one of us had money, we knew that the power wasn't going to get shut off. You know what I mean? And so I remember coming after doing Geronimo, it was like, I, I was like, fuck, I probably had 35 grand or something in the bank. And I was like, well, you know, in my checking account, it was like, we're good. <laughs> like we got, we got this. We're good for a year. We're good for a I year. Think that attitude really helped us in ways we couldn't anticipate, which was, uh, I see other people get kind of falsely wrapped up in the ideas in businesses that are very competitive. Uh, like this person, you know, in front of me, I it has to be knocked down for me to sort of step yeah. up one run. It's like zero sum well, game. Yeah, yeah. Right. Whereas Matt and I always kind of felt like we were in it together. We're like, yeah, hey, hey, I want to get the part, but I want you to get the part. We're, all, we're it's, it's share. It's collaborative. And, and so you don't ha- we didn't develop this sense, which I think can happen because you might be the only actor, you know, and you're starting to audition and you're going out there and everybody feels like competition and you didn't get it. And someone else got it. And whereas we kind of have the school of like, hey, if we do something, you know, that's interesting enough, then there'll be room for us, too. And this is why I, I can honestly say I've even at the times where where the disparity between the points in our careers was really uh, it's extreme, you know. I, I never envied Matt that I always rooted for that one that I certainly wanted for myself and didn't and wanted to be regarded and respected in a, in a way that was fair and honest. But, uh, and I, I, there are things I envied Matt. I, he had a great Matt's dad as a, like a, was a spectacular guy who I loved enormously and a great relationship. And I, I envied that, but I, I did think, wow, that's, that's great. You know, I, I, where the line is between I want that or something. It's, that wasn't like I coveted it, but I, I, Loved it, respected, and I, I would love, I do envy uh, in an ongoing way Matt's um, ability to move a little bit more unmolested through the world without the sort of particularly kind of toxic people who um, run around taking pictures, like mostly for the sake of of my kids. Um, yeah. But I always, I never, I was never, been, I've always been kind of baffled by the whole. It's not enough that I should succeed, but my friends should fail. It's funny though, people don't realize how close you guys were, even though they know you're like aligned in a lot of ways and these guys were buddies and they wrote this movie, but I don't think people realize like the actual best friend, like share. I don't even have a friend that I would have shared a checking account with. That's yeah. unusual. Yeah. Well, we had this shared a nice dream. Too. Weird, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Well, it's, it was unusual, but it was also like we, we needed the money for, for auditions yeah, for trips to, New, to New, York. New York. So that's what the money was for. It was like, you were allowed to go to New York with the money. You could go to the account where we were allowed to take out 10 bucks and get quarters and go to a thousand and one and play video games. That was another use of the money we were allowed. And, uh, and eventually, you know, we, we were allowed to try to buy beer like, you right, know, which right. never fucking worked. But <laughs> and like, that's how we went broke. With that <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, I, that it was a, we, it's a weird thing in retrospect. Like we've reflected on yeah, that. Like, like we're going to help each other and be here for each other. And it's hard enough. And let's try to do this together. I mean, can you imagine how happy I was when that born movie worked? Boy, <laughs> <laughs> the account I was like, Hey, look, you're not going to be alone. I'm not going to be alone. We're not going to see each other. Like be hard. Let's go out there and like do this together. And it wasn't, we, we also had that spirit, you know, like 
I mean, certainly when we were out in LA and started, like I did, you know, reindeer games and got my first big paycheck. Good movie. I'm in on reindeer games. Thank you. Um, No, I had like eight guys from Boston living. One guy was living in a closet. You know what I mean? Literally. (laughs) Literally. I swear to God, his mattress was in a closet. These are like Cambridge guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all the guys we grew up with, but I, and I would come in cause I didn't have a house. I, I would come in off easy. the road with my duffel bag and I'd like get a room at Ben's house for like, I'd be off the road for like a month and I just move in. And so when you guys made it, all these, all these friends you had from Massachusetts, they're just coming. Yeah. Because that was like That's the, the best mentality. thing in the world. Yeah. Like to be able to have it and be with our friends and hang out. And we had a great time. You know, and it was, these are the people that we love. They're our friends. We want to be around. And you're in your twenties. Those are the relationships unless you've gotten married. But that's also a really fun decade for that to happen. Cause I, I think is, you know, when we do the rewatchables pod, those nineties movies, there's just so many good scripts and so much talent. So many directors. An abundance. Like you'd read these scripts. It was just one after another. So many people trying to make indie films or people trying to break into that world. And I I, I would think now it'd be so so much harder. Yeah. you know, those people you can make, you know, she's got to have it or slack or Rick Linklater, you know, our clerks. We wrote and, the Robin Williams part. We called it the Harvey Keitel part. Yeah, right? Reservoir, right. Reservoir Dogs. Because we knew that that movie got funded because Harvey said he'd do it. And once Keitel was on, they they were like, okay, cool. We, we got so, a million bucks or so the story. So went. we literally had this role, you know, in the, you know, it was called, his name was Robert for a long time because we thought we, we'd want Robert De Niro if we could get him. And then we changed it to Sean. Robert. Right. And it was like, <laughs> but that was Sean And we were always, every time we got a job, we'd think like, maybe this is, maybe ooh, this, this is. Yeah. And I remember there was one actor that Matt went to work with and we had really high hopes. And I, and uh, I called him on location, like, of course, like the next day. And I was like, so how's it going? He, I don't think he's going to do our movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, I think, Robert Duvall. No, like, it wasn't. No, what? Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. You have to tell me after. All right. All right for sure. <laughs> What's the maddest you guys have ever been at each other? Have you ever been, has there ever been like a real, I can't, I'm so mad at Ben right now, blah, 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 or anything like that? Or have you always uh, been I mean, aligned? Nothing, nothing that is appropriate for a podcast. Because yeah. it wouldn't be like, oh, I'm so mad, you know, like. And I'm like, I'm mad yeah, you didn't yeah, take out yeah, the trash, yeah. you know, it's like, but. Uh, Although that, Matt, stood, I do remember one time me and Casey in Somerville just being like, let's see how long he can go. Oh, so that's kind of a pig? Matt, we were like, we're just going to give it to, we're going to just yeah. wait and not pick anything up. Three days later, we came home. Matt was playing video games surrounded by old sushi boxes. It's just like, okay, you waited us out. You got it, you win. You That's so gross. You never had, there was never like the same woman or same girl in high school or anything like that where we had, we, you know, we did pretty well. I mean, I think, uh, I remember Matt, I remember one time Matt, we were having a snowball fight and Matt like threw a snowball, like it was close and I turned around and hit me in the face and I remember a burst of rage and chasing him down the street. I didn't quite catch him. As I remember, I fell again. <laughs> like that, I was mad. I wish the snowball. So you didn't even remember the snowball. I fight. don't even remember that. Yeah. I remember. Remember you threw an acorn and on school ties and accidentally hit me in the eye, and I had to go to the hospital. I do remember that. What we were just we were just walking across the the quad like all the guys <laughs> and chucking acorns at each other, and he threw one at like Randall Battenkoff and Randall ducked and it like hit me in the eye and I, I literally had to go too fast and I still don't have complete control over my body <laughs> or a real accurate sense of how long my limbs are. But then I really didn't. 
So I, I think I, I could be kind of annoying to be around. This is the guy who always spilled the drink at the table and, you know, like, because I make he some gesture. He was like 5'2", yeah. and then the next, like, month he, he was... Something like year. Dennis Radman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was 5'2", and then at the beginning of my sophomore year, and at the end, I was 6'2", uh, 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 or 6'3". Jesus. Yeah. So yeah. Were you, was, were you like, in the shower like scene in Except school ties? Were you part of that scene? When no, Matt was naked shower, for like three no, days but in I the was shower? At, I, was, uh, I was made to strip and, uh, and dance around topless. Not made to. No, I, I, that was, I did have a topless scene in the movie that was, but it wasn't the, uh, I didn't. It wasn't the shower scene. It, it, was, the the, it was the, it was the. How many days were you naked in that scene? It was a long scene. I think it was probably two days of shooting. Jesus. I mean, it was like, there was a whole monologue. And it felt it was long, like... but it was short. <laughs> 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 That's crazy. This episode is brought to you by Burger King, which has the greatest commercial song I think I've ever heard. The ultimate hunger hack has arrived, my friends. BK's Royal Crispy Wraps. Choose from four bold flavors, classic, spicy, honey mustard, and the new, drumroll please, fiery buffalo. Oh yeah, I'm getting that one. They're only, only just $2.99 each because at BK, have it your way, you roll. Try Royal Crispy Wraps at Burger King, $2.99 each. Price and participation vary, U.S. only. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. Let's talk about this movie. So sure, other than not? putting Matt in a fat suit, what were your goals? My goals were, I mean, there's a, so many things uh, about this movie that were interesting. One, the movie itself being about how important and meaningful it was and companies started to really recognize the contribution, not just of these athletes, but their identity, what they brought to it and, and to really value them, or at least to begin to value them in a way that was, you know, appropriate and commensurate with what, what the value they were creating, their mm. cultural, cultural footprint, their impact. Secondly, that it was the sort of nascent stage of this kind of identity brand, you know, evolution. And this was the beginning of the time when companies started having beliefs. Like, we're going to have rules. We're going to have, we're gonna have ethos. It wasn't just punch a clock, we'll pay your check. That's what you believe in. It was, uh, hey, no, this means something, which is now ubiquitous, right? The Google, you know, the campus, Apple, it's all very sort of, um, you know, magical. And, uh, you know, it's all got some sort of deeper, it's supposed, you're spo your company's supposed to mean something. You yeah. just have a mission statement as a company now. That wasn't a thing people took for granted. And then really the story of, 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 it paralleled the values that we wanted to sort of infuse into speaking of values, at least in terms of the business practice of this company, which was to, to do exactly that. So like the best 
um, technicians, artists, craftsmen, writers, actors, directors. Yeah, and, like the and shoe guy in them. the basement, just like yeah, making yeah, world-class exactly. shoes in one and day. That's what artist equity wanted to be and do. And then, you know, I, it was, for me, it was, I mean, look, just having a chance to, to do something with Matt, I really looked forward to because it was just so fun and joyful. And I loved that. And it was like we talked about, like, we should be working together. But the movie um, actually started to mean something to me or mean a lot more. And I realized I needed other contributors and other voices and help when I, I talked to Michael, who was really generous enough to sit down with me briefly for an afternoon. And because um, I wasn't going to make this movie without saying, like, is this OK with you? You yeah. know, and asking for his respect and his, you know, it's not like um, his authorship or I mean, you know, we couldn't pay him his rights like he has. It's not a, a movie he branded. And I don't want to pretend that uh, give it that patina because that has value. And that's Michael's value. But but. um what I did want to say was, you know, like, I respect you enormously. And if you don't want this to happen, I will absolutely not do it. And, and then you played poker and you figured it out. <laughs> like, and B, right, like, whoever what? wins this hand. <laughs> no, then I would have lost for sure. Um, <laughs> B, what is, what's important to you? And the thing that stood out to me said like, hey, George Raveling is meaningful to me. He yeah. was a big, he was a reason why I ended up at Nike. Uh, you know, he mentioned uh, Howard White. And how meaningful Howard was to him. This is a Chris Tucker Howard's, character. Was, yeah. I, then gave me, he gave me like these two amazing gifts, both saying, telling me about Howard and the opportunity to work with Chris Tucker because I found that role, which we sent to Chris and said, I don't know what the role is. I need your help to make it. Come work with us and write it and build it. Yeah. I, and he worked with Howard. So we had, we really use a collaboration of multiple contributors and kind of said the same thing to Viola, you know, because Michael said, <laughs> I said, who do you want? And he was, he said, Viola Davis. That has to be my mother. <laughs> Which, I was like, she I has was, two lines. That's, <laughs> the joke we have is like, that's like saying you want Michael Jordan for your basketball. Right, right. You know what I mean? Seriously. Like, yeah, oh, no yeah. shit. You, want you don't, you don't want Jerry Seasting? <laughs> How about uh, yeah. Scott <laughs> Wedman's available? Yeah. And yeah. so it's like, okay, but I thought it was kind of typical of Michael, you know, like uh, the figures. Yeah, he, he wants, wants the, the very best, best thing yeah, in the world. Exactly. Great, terrific. We'll make it happen. But then I got to have the chance. It's like a lifelong dream of mine to, to, to have Viola be in a movie I directed. I, I just thought that would like means something for me that I had made it kind of as a director that that's an actor that important and talented was willing to trust me with their performance. And then it made incumbent on us to try to start to write a part that to write a part that Viola Davis that might say she would do. Her. Yeah, that was and then, like the Goodwill hunting lesson of you. we have to write the Robin Williams yeah, part. Yeah, that makes somebody like yeah. Robin Williams want to do it. And the second part of that lesson of learned afterwards to then say to Viola, look, yeah, you know, she didn't do the movie because I asked. It was like Michael would like you to play his mom, <laughs> and this is that's pretty tough to turn down. The best, yeah, that's what I was hoping. And here's the here's the best we can do: come help us and use your voice and experience and make this better. Better, uh, because I don't know what Dolores Jordan's perspective exactly might have been or would have been. And uh, I mean, obviously, neither is Viola. They don't know one another, but her contribution, like uh, she, her voice, her perspective, is apt to have more in common and more of a connection. And, and it's that collaboration and multiple voices. Cause it's, I don't, if you were to make a movie that's realistic and authentic and has people from all different parts of life, well, there is no one person who can speak with authority in all those voices. It's a necessarily a collaborative effort. And really look, here's the secret to directing is just work with brilliant people. 
And that's what I did with this movie. It's the best movie I've ever made. And it's a, it's just a function of all these people who not only are brilliant, Matt, Viola, Jason, spectacular, you know, Chris, Chris Messina, who's great, Matt Mayer, is also the... You know, I really Viola love this movie, but I'm not, I'm just not going to shove the town aside. Yeah. <laughs> if it's okay. You can, if you it's okay. Are, the town's therapy. having a great run in the Simmons house. So I, don't take, I don't want to take, I don't want to take careful. any DVDs off the shelf. Be careful. I like that you don't even cite the one he won Best Picture for. You're just like you're straight to the town. The, the town are more popular. Know, the movie. town and Rounders and Goodwill Hunting and you know you know how I feel. But I just I didn't want you to kick the rounders. town. Aside. The rounders. I want to see. That actually reminds me. We had. I don't want to do this in the podcast. <laughs> no, we're doing it. Rounders too. It's <laughs> a, well, lot, a lot of whispers it. right now. I know. We've been I've, talking about it for years. We're trying to. We're investigating whether or not we we're can, investigating. We can do it. Um, because were it's you so, jealous that you weren't in Rounders one? Um, it was kind of before you started no, playing I wasn't, poker. No, I wasn't playing poker my, no, much right. then. Um, and I was much smaller. It was a really small it's time then. It was like... It really was. Go down to, you know, get the, the, the camera and the door. And the, you know, had 100 people in the main event. I know. But you, so so Koppelman and I and, and Ed Norton played in it. Uh, Edward and I played in it. You played. The 10K you Wizards did well, right? didn't you? Didn't you I made like, it make to, it? No, I made it to the afternoon. But but I I, I lost. I had Kings. I shoved and Doyle yeah, Brunson had aces. It was unbelievable. It was like the greatest story. I lost to Doyle Brunson. That, if you were able to say now that you finished whatever it was, 89th in the World Series of Poker, you, know what I think? you would have to be a world-class yeah, player. Yeah, no I, think, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think there were 350 people the year that I played, something like that. Uh, no, or like, 700. I it might have been 700. Way more now. Oh, now, now it's 10,000. 10, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I don't even know. I mean, certainly in the early days, there were less than 100. When Doyle was winning, yeah. was, was a, the number of people who were paying ten thousand dollars to enter a poker tournament was very small. Yeah, and you had to think you had a chance of winning. When to, that was to, what ninety eight, ninety nine, ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, ninety nine. No, that's that was ninety nine. It was ninety. Yeah. We shot it in ninety eight. Um, yeah, it was late ninety eight. That don't it came a, out. Don't ask that's why right. I know these things. That's right. Um, yeah. Might have seen it a few times, man. I it's and and I and you know that movie was a, a bomb. You know, and the whole thing like it was. It was years later. I think in 2007, it went into the black. And it was. But the thing is, it, it caught that. It was preceded the poker boom, but as the poker boom happens, it becomes the 350 movie. 350, the year. Yeah. I told I knew it. 350. And then the next year, there were 700 people, I think. And then it just What's started. The, the, it was no, notable for having only five players reach the official final table. Uh, why did really? that happen? I don't know. Wait, so you played. Oh, maybe they just knocked each other out like maybe, in the final. Yeah. So you played Sonny Vaccaro. How much? How much research did you have to do? I think we did a thirty for thirty at, on him at one point. You did. I can't remember fact, if I was still there. The writer, or not. I, I believe Alex Convery, the writer, got was was worked on that. Yeah. On the on the thirty for thirty, and that's how he and he wrote the script on spec, like just based on the experience of working on that show. I think that's how that that was the genesis of. Because the, the crazy thing about him is it's set up as like he basically. He doesn't save Nike, but he pushes Nike to a whole other level. But then eventually goes to compete against them. Yeah, well, he got fired in a real way. Well, and what was really interesting talking to Sonny was 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 because because it all ended like you know after our movie ends, it it descends into like acrimony and like, you know, right. between everybody, you know. But they all like Sonny was really uh, particular about making sure he 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 really wanted to impress on me the fact that this was this really joyful time in yeah. all their lives. You know, he was you know. You know him and George Raveling were the greatest of friends, and 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 Phil, everybody, you know Rob Strasser, all these people were. That really was the good old days for these guys, and 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 uh, and interestingly enough, when Ben showed the movie to Phil, like he said the same thing. 
um, you know, be, because when we initially talked to him on the phone, I said something about Sonny. He goes, oh, I bet he has nice things to say, you know, like, cause, cause I think they've had so much public, there's been so much right. public feuding between Phil and Sonny. And I said, actually, he was really, uh, he, he specifically said that this was kind of the greatest time in his life and that he had, and, and, and that the feeling there, there was such kind of, uh, this kind of like wonderful collaboration and teamwork between everybody there. Like the, it was this really, and Phil said that to Ben just yesterday. He said, this was a real, these people were my friends. He goes like, this was a, this was a great time in our lives. So he w was Phil okay with the movie? Cause it, it's hard. You watch this movie and it's like, am I supposed to like Phil Knight in this movie? Well, Cause I, I like some pieces and not I other pieces. I think he's supposed to be complicated. Yeah. And that's what I like. I didn't, it's not a, it's not a geography. It's not like we're not, I didn't, it's not a commercial. It's yeah. not uh, trying to, you know, it's not propaganda. It's like about a lot of it's about things people didn't see coming and frailty and weakness and conflict. Yeah. And, but that that's actually part of the process of creating things. Often in retrospect, we like, we often sort of painted in a, a, a certain way with a more direct line. And, you know, yes, Phil, there, Phil's complicated and, and that's sort of, and I thought it was very impressive that, and graceful of him to, to recognize the, affection the movie has for Nike and in particular for the spirit of that like time when, when she said these people these these are we were friends yeah we were just trying to make something and you know I said to him hey look Phil I you know I when you see this movie I'm, I've had the experience of you know, being a meme a time or two I like yeah I get it you know part of the exchange is you know you you, you know you go out there and this is part of the deal and I still you know like people like to make fun of the boss as a storyteller, that's kind of like the person who's going to be like functions uh, best as sort of, you know, the foil in a way. And by the way, somebody's got to say, hold on, or this isn't a good idea, or there's no drama. If at the beginning of the movie, everybody just says, yeah, we're doing it, then the, the movie's kind of over. Yeah. So, and part of what I thought was interesting about Phil was like, I, I really am a, um, I've read a lot about Buddhism myself and I find myself very drawn to it and interested in it. And I also find that I'm really drawn to it. And yet oftentimes I see my life running counter to the tenets of Buddhism, which is why I love that. Like, does the Dalai Lama have a grape colored Porsche line? Uh, because it's just speaks to all of our kind of hypocrisies and other nature, which none of us are who we want to be or claim to be or believe we are. And, and that, you know, you try, he was a guy who was, like Matt says, like selling shoes out of the back of his value. Like you're a revolutionary, you're a renegade, you're a pirate. And now you're in charge of the ship. And that's interesting. So he's, what well, he's easy certainly for a quirky, risks. quirky movie character. Yeah, right? he should be. That's good quirks funny. that like make sense as you're watching a movie. Dude, if you nobody don't know wants the to see a movie. Matt's, I mean, nobody wants to see with a bunch of like perfect people. I, that's what I think the worst movies I've done and been involved in have all been governed by this idea that, well, you can't do that. And our character can't do this. And, you know, there are things that are outside the parameters of what's acceptable. And the parts I've had found the most rich and interesting were the ones were more character parts. We were allowed yeah. to do things that, you know, and in some ways it's true. You can't have the audience reject your protagonist because then the, the drama fails. But I believe that they're more drawn to people who, have real flaws, who have weaknesses, who struggle. And then because like we all feel we do, and then find some way of healing some of that or redeeming some of that or finding some purchase again in their life in some way. And it's not any things feel false to the audience yeah. when you tell them like, you know, yeah, it all works out. Or, or it was just like, or th this person would never do that. 
I just think that feels like bullshit. And once you do that, the movie's no good. Well, this movie, I had to like it for this movie to work. For sure. Yeah. I'm like basically sure. the Venn diagram of the movie. In you fact, didn't like it. In fact, we, we, like, we, we it almost, would have been bad. You have no idea how close we were to calling you. The first scene where with Bateman, no. where, we're, where we're going through the I draft. I wanted to put you in the we movie were, and Matt was like, fuck him. No, we, no, no, I we should have been a poster consultant at the very we, least. We were going to, we wanted to put you in that scene, but just, but we thought people, it might take people out of the movie. If they're hey, like, oh, fucking Bill right. Simmons is yeah, in the movie. What the fuck is he doing there? Also, I was like, if Simmons, we want Simmons to like it. And if he's in it, it's going to look like bullshit. It's going to look yeah, like I'm bullshit. in the bag. Yeah. yeah. I should have been poster consultant, but you had, those are authentic you nailed posters. every single poster. Cause those, those are all I the, love the, yeah, those are yeah, all the You didn't ones. have jam session though. I would, that would have been my Duncan one recommendation. And like, oh, you had all of them. Yeah, we, yeah. I just went for you the, the first ones. Like, because I love the contrast. The Williams which family. They treated the, the, like the art photography of the marathoners. Right. And that, that was where that company put a premium on that sort of, because they did sort of want to be evocative of, you know, the agony feet, the, the marathoners in the rain on the ground and the, you know, the, those Bruce Jenner photographs. Yeah. And, and, and the Cathalon is just like, you know, they or made Paul, art out of athletes. Paul Westfall with like this wide shot, yeah. like a portrait of a guy playing basketball. But except that with the basketball was late to the game with that. Yeah. The early, the same time they were doing art with the, it's like what, what, what uh, Chris Tucker how Weiss is the beginning. They're doing Picasso's upstairs and the cartoons down here. That's like, you know, Bobby Jones, the secretary of defense and he's sitting on the desk. <laughs> I love that. That's so it's good. so <laughs> goofy. Gus and Ray Williams with their mom. They're like, let's yeah, put yeah. this out. This yeah. will be a new poster. Like, what were they thinking of? Those things. Things. I think, and, and, uh, and there's a lot of cocaine Jordan, back then. But you see Jordan? <laughs> <laughs> and then you started doing Annie Leibovitz. Annie Leibovitz. And, and the, yeah, the photo right. with the arms. The ar well, wings, wings was the best. Every Jordan poster, and I had most of them in college. But they were all like, they were a whole different form of the art. Because all of a sudden, you looked at Michael Jordan and thought like, this is art in motion. And they recognized that and the rest of the world did. And it began to be treated that way. And they weren't sort of asking, you know, guys to come out and be, I no, know, he transcended Malone, wear everything. your robes and carry a shepherd's <laughs> yeah. staff. I love that one though. <laughs> that was the, so uh, good. The, I had, I put on Instagram, I put a picture of my room in like sophomore year in college and there were just a ton of Jordan posters. And a couple of people were like, thought you were a Boston fan. I was like, Jordan transcended Boston. It was like, we we were cool with Jordan, even though we hated everybody else. Did, you, Jordan, did you see him play live? Oh yeah. Yeah, I went to a bunch of those games. I mean, I, I, I saw used to go, my dad, my dad used to get us one he, one game for Christmas. We had one game a year through his company. And uh, and obviously we couldn't go to a Laker game because you couldn't have those tickets because they needed those for clients. But, um, but because we, there was we, one of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the thing with but, him, but he, we, we would choose Jordan. My brother and I would go see Jordan yeah, every that was, time he came to Boston. It, it now it would be Curry, I think, because like I saw Curry Wednesday night, it was the same thing. Like just, it was just, transcended any possibility or expectation you could have had. You got hot in the third quarter. It's interesting because Jordan then started the argument of everyone who comes after who's great. The question is, Well, you solved the argument in the movie. I don't want to spoil the title card at the end, but. Well, I'm sure that'll be a subject of furious debate. <laughs> oh my God. That's going to be one of the talking points. Yeah. The thing with Jordan, he got to that point when he came back after the baseball, when they were great. He just felt so famous. He almost felt too famous for even people to go see him at a game. And he yeah. would walk in and people would just stare at him like he was. Well, he said that famous, famous thing where he, where he said, I, he said he, he would put a suit on every time he left his hotel room because he goes, I'm going to walk through the lobby. He goes, there's going to be some kid who's going to see me. And it's the only time in his life he's going to see Michael Jordan. Right. He goes, and I got to look like Michael Jordan. Like the understanding of, we were laughing about this, the understanding of like an icon 
because I was telling Ben that story and Ben goes, yeah, I, you know, you know, my wife, you know, she's like, she's always looks amazing. Every time she goes out of the house, like I'm getting pictures taking me you know, with my fucking yeah. Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And, and I go, yeah, but your wife's an icon. And he right. goes, she, and I go, yeah, she's an icon. Like you're not <laughs> like you and me are not icons. Like you have to, you, you only, you know it if you are one, right. Then yeah. you behave like one just because that's what you are. That's and the you responsibility just, you just, of it. And, but, and you feel it in your heart and you know it. It's like the reason we don't have that impulse is because we're not icons. Well, one of the things, I mean, you don't overtly say this in the movie, but it's not hard to figure out. Like Nike and the NBA just catch each other at the absolute perfect time where you have 84 was the first year where they didn't tape delay the games. Yeah, yeah. Bird yeah. and Magic. And that was yeah. a really important finals for the league. I grew up loving the league when it was like the, you know, the black sheep of the sports scene and they're tape delaying games and... Yeah. You know, guys are going to drug rehab for two months and coming back and they're still kind of zonked out. And it was just, but we loved it. You yeah, know, Kareem, yeah. Kareem was the star of the league, but it wasn't like fun to go see Kareem play as great as he was. And then this I whole Kareem, era comes they in. They make Kareem so good in 2K that, and still I, I don't like to use, like there's something that, and by the way, I guess if you look at his numbers, it was methodical relative to yeah. the other players in that time. He was his amazing. He won so six you, MVPs in ten years. Dude, he, you cannot out rebound him. Now in here's, that game. here's a yeah. question that you might know the answer because Jack Nicholson told me this twenty something years ago. We I, were at some Golden Globes party and we got in the corner talking about basketball. Yeah, and and we were talking about who the greatest was, and uh, he said that Kareem over the course of his career, right? How at 23, however long, many years, I mean, unbelievably long, incredible oh, the career. scoring record up right. until now. So, <laughs> and he played in college. That when yeah. the ball uh, went through him, so when he touched the ball on offense, not necessarily took the shot, obviously, but if he, if he touched the ball on offense, they, his team scored 75% of the time. Jesus. Whoa. That is a fucking unbelievable statistic. Well, that statistic would have to mean 100% of the times he didn't shoot, right? Because it's his field goal percentage. I mean. Yeah, like 50, high yeah, 50s. Yeah, yeah. He's but the still, most automatic two points. But when, when Jordan came in the league, the weird thing about the Nike piece, which you hit in the movie a little bit, but I, like as a teenager living in the East Coast, like the Olympic team was cemented it for me. mm and they, granted, we killed everybody and the Russians didn't show up, but he was just so obviously a star after that. And you, yeah, you said you cut the scene, the, the yeah. Stu Inman scene you cut yeah, out? Yeah, we did cut that. Yeah. Because that's from breaks in the game. Well, it's too bad, by the way, and, and a shout out to Tom Papa, who was, who, who was in the, in fucking great in this scene. And yeah, but I the, blew it. But well, what the problem became was what we realized when we looked at the film is Sonny had to be sure Right. He had to yeah. have this moment where he of clarity where he goes, this is our guy. And, and, and like, I'm, I'm betting everything on this guy. And the problem with the scene as written with Stu was I was going to Stu going like, why didn't you draft him? Like, what are you seeing? Are you seeing anything? So it was he and was I kind of unsure. that way. So that which was a mistake. It was like the first or second day, because then you just feel like, oh, everyone is already taking it for granted that this was a huge blunder that he wasn't drafted first. So everybody already It knows. makes sense why you would leave it out because it yeah. builds more dramatic tension. Yeah, it was the second Halberstam book, not the first one, but Bobby Knight is like basically telling for the listeners, Bobby telling Knight. the Portland GM like, you have to draft this guy. It's like, we already have well, a guard. Bobby we have Knight, have you seen the video? Yeah. He says Bobby Michael Jordan's the best player who's ever played yeah. before he In, in 1984, right. he says yeah. it. He says it on that. He says it. Oops, I got to go to meet my wife. He says okay. before Jordan is is in the league. 
he goes, he goes, he's the greatest. I mean, it's well, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He explains it. It's he on YouTube. Why. Go, yeah, go he explains why. And, and, and what he ends with is is his competitive uh, fire. Bobby Knight that's what he, like, he identifies yeah. like the right. X factor. No, he breaks the whole thing down. And he didn't seem like he was the nicest guy in the world. But I saw that and I thought, wow, that guy really saw it and understood, obviously understood basketball because he breaks down unequivocally why Michael Jordan is absolutely the best basketball player ever and he's never been in the NBA and he was right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Movie's called You Air. were about to say that about this movie. <laughs> and then we had to. I, it's not even his favorite Ben Affleck movie. I man. love this movie. Um, congratulations, guys. Good Thank to see you, you, man. All right. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to Logan Murdoch. Thanks to Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Thanks to Kyle Creighton and Steve Cerruti. And I will see you on this feed on Thursday. I don't know if the podcast will be as good as it was today, but I will see you on Thursday.